Well, let's turn together to the book of Jude. This will be our last sermon in Jude. We're going to read from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Verse 22. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we finish our series in Jude this morning, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this letter that you inspired Jude to write and that you preserved for us. We give you thanks, Lord, for its relevant message and how it instructs us and warns us and encourages us. And Lord, I ask that this morning as we look at this last passage that you would give us understanding for we know that all understanding comes from you. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning, that you would show us the beauty of your Son, that we would realize that we're not hearing from man when we open the Scriptures, but we're hearing from you and that we would listen accordingly and look accordingly and that you would Lord, show us the beauty of who you are through your Son. Fill our hearts, Lord, with the precious knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do in our time here this morning and in our reading and studying of your word. Glorify your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. With the advent of the Reformation in the 16th century, a new environment in the world was born. And that environment that came with the advent of the Reformation was fertile ground for heresies. Fertile ground for heretics. In fact, this is one of the great complaints of Roman Catholics against the Reformation. See what you've done. See what you've done in opposing the Roman Catholic Church and in seeking to reform things. You caused a schism. You caused a break away from the Catholic Church. And take a look now at all the different sects, at all the different groups, at all the different teachings that have come out of your Reformation. Fertile ground for heresies is what you made. And this is used as proof against the Reformation, as proof that what Luther did and what Calvin did and other Reformers did was not good, because look at the results. But brothers and sisters, this fertile ground for heresies and what happened as a result of the Reformation is actually proof supporting it. It's actually proof supporting it. 
For the Reformation brought us back to the New Testament and first century environment. Okay? Now, what, what you notice when you read the Bible and what you notice when you study the first century is that when the Christian church took off at the very beginning, it was assaulted on every side by heresy and by heretics. Right? And the reason why the Roman Catholic, the time of Roman Catholic dominance didn't see so much heretics and so much heresy is because the ground wasn't fertile. And the reason is, is because the Roman Catholic Church was able to impose a uniformity through force. But in the first century, it is to be noted that heresies were warned, it was warned that heresies and heretics would come. They came and that they must be fought with the pen and not the sword. And this is what Jude tells us to do, right? Earnestly contend for the faith, for these these false brothers who are creeping into the church. And he never says in the book of Jude, put them to death. Exile them. Kick them out of your cities. He never says that. But he tells us to earnestly contend for the faith. The Reformation brought us back to this place where heretics and heresy had some freedom. Heretics had the freedom to preach and they needed to be refuted by the word. That's what it was like before the, Roman, the, the Catholic Church became the, the church of the Roman Empire, the religion of the Roman Empire. And at the time of the Reformation, we returned to that time where, yes, we have a fertile ground for heretics because they can look at the scripture for themselves, they can preach all they want, and no one's going to kill them. And they must be refuted by the word of God. So no, it's not a proof against the Reformation at all. It's proof for the Reformation. I'd like to um, introduce, if you've not heard of this particular individual, a heretic from the time of the Reformation. Immediately when the Reformation began, immediately when the Roman Catholic Church lost their uniformity, there were heretics. Just as in the first century, there were immediately heretics. And there was a heretic by the name of Fausto Sosini. And Sosini was an Italian Catholic. Fausto Sosini. Now, maybe you're familiar with him from his Latinized name, Sosinus. Maybe you're not. An Italian Catholic by birth. He was born into a family that was prone to speculations. And this family happened to get wrapped up during the time of the Reformation with all the anti-Roman Catholic fervor and lots of things, people reevaluating the Bible. They got involved with people who were anti-Trinitarian, who didn't believe that Jesus was, was God. And, and so uh, we actually have letters that were written between John Calvin himself and Fausto Sosini's uncle. And Calvin warns the uncle against his pious inspect, his pious uh, sorry, his impious speculations. And he's, and he's warning him because uh, Socini's uncle would write to Calvin with questions. And he'd say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And, and you can read them and they're really just pointless speculations that have no real value. And Calvin warned him and says, cut out your impious speculations. So this is the family that Socini was a part of. When Sosini was in his 30s, about 1578, he wrote a book that became famous. 
And it, it today is a relevant book in the study of the atonement. He wrote a book on the atonement of Jesus Christ called Jesus Christ the Savior. And in this book, Fausto Sosini attacked the doctrine, attacked the idea that Jesus is our Savior in the sense that he died for our sins as a sacrifice. This, this is not how Jesus is our Savior. He's not our Savior. He doesn't save us by dying for our sins, by being an atoning sacrifice. That idea to Socini was repulsive and it was illogical. It was repulsive because if salvation is free, if forgiveness is free, why then do we have to believe that God has to require a satisfaction? How can you say that God forgives freely sinners and yet he has to require the death of his son? That's barbaric. That's old-fashioned. That's like you believe in this angry God that needs to be appeased because you tick him off and, and his son has to die this bloody sacrifice so that he can forgive you. Barbaric. So it was revolting to Socini. It was also illogical. How can you say it's free and that God saves us from himself? What do you mean God saves us from himself? If he wants to forgive you, he's going to forgive you. He doesn't need to... He doesn't need to save you from himself. That's silly. As if there's some kind of a schizophrenia in God. How does Socini see Jesus as our Savior then? Here's a quote from the book. Jesus, he says, is our Savior because he announced to us the way of eternal life. Notice it's not because he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus is our Savior, and we can rightly call him that, because he announced to us the way of eternal life. And in his own person, not only by the example of his life, but also by rising from the dead, so Sini believed Jesus rose from the dead, he was the Messiah, not only by the example of his life, but by the example of him rising from the dead, he clearly showed that there is eternal life. And he will give eternal life to us who believe in him and who follow in his steps. Sassini considered himself a dedicated Christian. He lived a morally exemplary, a morally exemplary life. After this book was written, he attracted lots of attention. He was invited to Poland by a duke, and there he founded a movement which we call Socinianism. Maybe you've heard of it before. And it exists today in a different form, though. They don't call themselves uh, Socinians, they call themselves Unitarians. You ever heard of Unitarianism? The history of Unitarianism goes right back to Socini in Poland and some others as well that were like-minded with him. I went to the Unitarian website, Unitarian.org, and here's what they said about the death of Jesus. Because the Unitarians claim to believe in Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe Jesus is divine. They do believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's a person. They do not believe Jesus died for our sins. Here's what they say on their own website. Jesus' crucifixion was a supreme example of human integrity and faithfulness in the face of human evil. Unitarians do not see the crucifixion as a blood sacrifice for sin. It's a human example. You see what Jesus did on the cross? There's your example. Just do that. You'll be fine. Here's another quote. 
Unitarians see no need for blood sacrifice to buy back the soul. Jesus, Unitarians affirm, lived out his message of selfless love to the bitter end. Our own sin, our own false and selfish consciousness is overcome in as much as we too can live lovingly and selflessly no matter the cost. (laughs) Well, there you have it. We see no need for a bloody sacrifice. We see no need for his death for our sins. You see, in Socinianism and in Unitarianism, Jesus has no essential place in their religion. He could be discarded. It just so happened that he was the one God chose to announce the way of salvation through self-effort. It just so happened that he was... It could have been someone else. And now that we know the message, we don't really need Jesus anymore because we can just continue to proclaim it ourselves. Jesus has no essential place in the religion. It is essentially about what you do. It is essentially about you saving yourself through your own efforts just by being a good person to the bitter end, no matter the cost. And that's why Unitarians tend to see all religions as good, because they're all basically teaching you to be a good person. James Denny writes this about Socinianism and Socini. At best, Jesus is an argument for something else. And even if he gets a place in the mind, he has no home in the heart. He has no home in the heart. You see, when you read the New Testament, when you read the writings of the apostles and what they have to say about Jesus, you can see that Jesus has a home in their hearts. You can see that Jesus means everything to them, that they owe everything to Jesus Christ. They owe their salvation to Jesus Christ, not because he just announced this other way for them to be saved, but because he himself saved them and they love him. They love him for saving them. How different then is what Sozini says in the Unitarians from the Bible. For in the Bible, Jesus Christ is central and essential and loved. Here's what Jesus says. I'll share with you some statements from the Bible about the meaning of the death of Jesus. The meaning of the death of Jesus. Jesus said the night he was betrayed... This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus didn't say, just do do what I do, guys. This is just an example. He announced, this is my blood that is shed so you can be forgiven. I am shedding my blood for the remission of sins. When Jesus died, Matthew 27, 51, it says the veil of the temple was rent in two. Something happened with God when Jesus died. And that veil that separated man and God, that veil that that declared that men are sinful and cannot approach God, that veil was ripped in two at the death of Christ. And now the Bible tells us that we can come boldly before God through the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, verse 7, the Apostle John says, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Wow. How do you get cleansed from your sin? By the blood of Jesus Christ's Son. That's the only reason you and I stand before God clean. 
Not because we cleansed ourselves, not because we did anything good, but because his death was not just an example. His death was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that, that cleanses us from all sin. There is no sin that you can commit that cannot be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, The Father made peace through the blood of his cross by Christ to reconcile all things to himself. Wow. You and I have peace through the blood of the cross. The blood that he shed on the cross is what reconciles us to God. Paul goes on to say, or in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says the same thing in Colossians, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood. It is his death on the Christ, the shedding of his blood, that redeems us, that brings the forgiveness of sins, and it is because God is rich in grace that he provided this sacrifice for us. Colossians chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, he canceled our certificate of debt that was against us, nailing it to his cross. Every time we sin, the Bible says it gets recorded in heaven. And all of our sins that are recorded in heaven were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are gone. See, God is a meticulous record keeper, but the blood of Jesus Christ is that heavenly whiteout that takes away all of our sins when we put our faith in him. God doesn't forget our sins because time and inertia takes its toll. God never forgets our sins, but through the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us and blots them out before him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was because Jesus on the cross became sin in our place, took our place. Our sins were laid upon him and he died in our place. That is why we who believe are righteous before God. Not because we're good, but because he took our sins away as a sacrifice. John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And how does a lamb take away sin in the sacrificial uh, concept? The Lamb of God takes away sin by bearing it, by having the sins laid upon it, and by dying for them. The book of Hebrews tells us that when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Through his death, he took away our sins. Hebrews 9.26 Now once at the end of the age, Christ appeared to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And so in Hebrews 10 verse 19, we have boldness to enter in by the blood of Jesus. First Peter, Peter tells us, you were redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And John rings out this anthem in Revelation 1 verse 5 and 6, unto him that loved us and has washed us from our sins in his own blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Jesus Christ has the central and essential place in the Bible. In his death for our sins, he is our Savior. That is how Jesus Christ is your Savior and my Savior. Because he died for you. Brothers and sisters, do you love him for doing this for you? Does he have a home in your heart? Does he have a home in your heart? Is he just some concept in your mind? He's the Messiah, he had to tell the story, whatever. Or does he have a home in your heart that, that, that causes you to love him for coming into this world and dying for you and shedding his blood so that you can be forgiven, so that you can come before God, so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be saved, so that you have hope and you have eternal life? He is your Savior. Does, he, does that make you love him? Because it should. Nor is this repulsive or illogical. You see, the Socinians say this, because God is love, therefore he doesn't need a propitiation. Because he's love, he does away with the idea of propitiation. That's the reasoning of the Socinian. Why would you say he needs a propitiation if he's love? But listen to what the New Testament declares. The Bible tells us that because God is love, he provided a propitiation. Because he's love and doesn't want you to perish. And that's exactly what we were doing. And because there's no other way for us to be saved but through the propitiation of Christ, because he's love, he provided the propitiation. And the propitiation shows us the nature of God, that God is just. He's not just loving. He doesn't just sit up there in heaven and just love everybody and, and forgive everybody and doesn't care about sin and doesn't care about justice and he has no condemnation for sin. That's not true. The Bible shows us and the cross of Jesus Christ shows us that God is just and that he indeed condemns sin and he must condemn sin. And if he's going to forgive you of your sins, it's not going to be in a way where he overlooks your sin or forgets about the condemnation of sin and forgets about justice. The propitiation shows this about God and it shows us to what lengths God goes to save. It shows us his great love for us. Even though we are condemned, even though he must punish, he doesn't want to. He sends Christ to bear that for us. So forgiveness is free for us, but it's costly for him. Just because it's free for us, we shouldn't think that it's cheap. It was costly for him, for Jesus Christ bore the condemnation for our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be redeemed and washed clean from our sins. This shows us the love of God. And so this is not repulsive at all. This is the most precious thing to know about God. You lose this and you don't really have much of a God left, do you? This is precious. And if it's hard to understand, if it seems illogical, it's because it's God. And God is not like us. God is not simple like us. God is the perfect, sinless judge of all the earth and none of us are. And so God's situation with sinners is different than your situation with someone who sins against you. God is not like you. God is also more loving than you are. You think you know what love is, but you don't. So if it seems hard to understand, it's simply because it's God and his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and his nature is not our nature and he's different than we are. He is just. He'll never not be just. And he is loving more than we know. The theologian in the 1800s, William Cunningham, said this, 
about Socinianism, there has always been a great deal of latent and undeveloped Socinianism among men who have professed to believe in the truth of Christianity. And the cause of this, of course, is that Socinianism, in its germs or radical principles, is the system of theology that is natural to fallen and depraved man, that which springs up spontaneously in the human heart, unenlightened by the Spirit of God. Isn't that, amazing? Isn't that true? As I said, it's hard to understand the ways of God, that he is just and that he is loving, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The natural man doesn't understand this. The unenlightened mind that doesn't have the spirit of God thinks, well, if God's love, he's just going to forgive. He doesn't need a sacrifice, right? That's barbaric anyway. And so William Cunningham says, if you go, he goes on to say, if you go out to the general public, especially even those who profess to be Christians, and you ask them questions about the sacrifice of Christ or the love of God or the forgiveness of sins, you will find a great deal of latent Socinianism in them. That is so true. In fact, I know a girl at this time who's interested in joining Islam. She herself professes to be a Christian and was raised in a Christian church. She now, she's interested in joining Islam. She's, in, she's intrigued by Islam. And she was talked to by another Christian person and her reply was, well, why shouldn't I join Islam? I, st- I still believe I'm saved by grace. Why shouldn't I join Islam? I still believe it's by grace I'm, I'm, I'm saved. And this person replied, well, so, yeah, but they don't believe that Jesus died for our sins. That Islam denies the atonement of Christ. Islam says that God is all-merciful, so he just forgives without sacrifice. She said to him, well, why does he have to forgive through Jesus? Why does God have to forgive? Why can't I just believe I'm saved by grace and I believe that already? Why does it have to be about Jesus? Now, this person professes to be a Christian. She's a Socinian. Because she doesn't see the need. Yeah, Jesus is in Islam too, right? He's the prophet who announces the way of salvation. But why does he need to die on the cross? Why can't God just forgive without a sacrifice? You see, it's this doctrine, it's this point of the cross of Christ that condemns all the religions in the world. That says, you know, Muslim, Jew, Socinian, Unitarian, Buddhist, you cannot be saved apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Unless you put your faith and your hope in what Christ did as a sacrifice for you, you cannot be saved. You are not a good person. It is not through self-effort. No matter how much you trust in the mercy of God apart from Christ, you cannot be saved. Because God is not just merciful. He is just. You cannot be saved. And this is why all the religions in the world hate Christianity. It's for this reason. They don't hate Christians because we say you should, you know, not be bad. We hate Christians. They hate Christians because of the cross of Christ. The Bible says this is the offense. This is what is offensive. This is what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is what makes all the other religions in the world hold hands in opposition to Christianity. If Socinianism, as we'll call it, is natural and it manifests today, and it manifested immediately at the time of the Reformation, do you think it would not manifest in the first century? And this is what I've been uh, 
contending in this series that the book of Jude is all about. In that early environment of, uh, of the first century when heretics and heresies were coming and no one was killing them, we're going to label it Socinianism because that's a term that is helpful. I believe that the book of Jude is about this Socinian heresy. That idea that we can be saved by a merciful God, by a gracious God, apart from a bloody sacrifice. People have not changed, neither has God changed, and the book of Jude is as relevant today as it has ever been, because it deals with this natural wisdom in mankind. And Jude tells us to earnestly contend for the faith. And in the passage we read this morning, he tells us to reach out and help others. Last week we talked about Jude's imperatives, the first positive instructions in the book of Jude. We talked about how Jude exhorts the believers to stand firm in the faith in order that they may reach out. To stand firm and to reach out and help others. And you need to stand firm in order to help others. You stand firm in the faith by remembering what the apostles have taught, by building yourself up in the most holy faith, which happens through Built, which building occurs through studying the Word of God, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers and being in the community of believers, uh, edifying one another in the truth together. You stand firm by enjoying God's true love and by having an expectant hope and an expectant outlook toward the coming of Christ. We talked about this last week. Standing firm in the truth so that we are able to be helpful in a crisis. We talked about how when crisis comes, there's often two different kinds of people in crisis. There are those who have their head on their shoulders in a crisis and are able to help other people. You know, they're not, the, the, the crisis is happening all around them, but they're able to keep their head on their shoulder to think clearly and to, to be of assistance. There's other people who just curl up in a ball and cry. And Jude says, in this spiritual crisis, I don't want you to curl up in a ball and cry. I want you to stand firm, have a head on your shoulders, know what's going on, and help other people who are struggling with the same. And so this morning, we'll look at this, his exhortations of reaching out in verse 22 and 23. These are part of the imperatives of Jude. Earnestly contending for the faith doesn't only mean fighting for, one's, fighting for oneself's faith, but fighting for the faith of others as well. Now, there are some textual difficulties in verse 22 and 23, and maybe you noticed that when I read the passage, that, hey, my Bible doesn't really sound like your Bible very, very much. Uh, most scholars, the, the question is, are there two groups of people that Jude has in view here, or are there three groups of people that Jude has in view? In the New American Standard, which is what I read from, there are three groups of people in view. Uh, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So there's three groups in the New American Standard. Most scholars believe that the best texts that we have and the best evidence that we have uh, shows that there are three groups here, not two. But it really doesn't make that big of a difference because here is what is clear in, this, in these imperatives. What is clear is that there are different approaches to different people. Would you say that that's a general truth you can take from this? There are different approaches of helping and assisting others. Um, there are different approaches to different people. 
And that's probably the case, right? If someone's falling off a cliff, you shout at them. If someone's laying on the ground with a broken arm, you don't shout at them, right? There's different (laughs) approaches to different people. We know this from the text, and we know this from experience. If you have any experience sharing the gospel with people, you know that different people are in different places, and there's a different approach in sharing the gospel. Here's another thing that's clear from the text. Some people need gentleness, and some people need sharpness. Not all people need gentleness, and not all people need sharpness, and we tend to be good at doing one or the other. Right? Some people are good at being gentle all the time with all people. Some people are good at being sharp all the time with all people. But there needs to be discernment on which approach to take. Here's what he says about the first group in verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy on some, or as some translations will put, have compassion on the doubting. Now, the, the particular group that is being referred to, here, referred to here seems to be those whose minds are not settled on the issue. It's those whose minds are confused on this issue. Because there's false teachers, because they're teaching, there's someone who's kind of just caught in the caught like a deer in the headlights and doesn't know what to do. Uh, you tell me one thing I tell I don't know. And they're caught. They're confused. You ever met someone like that? I've met people like that. The Message Bible puts it this way, go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. It doesn't mean let them be. You help them. But it does mean you don't come down with a sledgehammer on their head. You see, because this group is probably Christians. might not be, but it probably is Christians. Whoever they are, they're just troubled. They haven't made up their mind either way. And so you're to gently have compassion on these people and help them out. For example, I know someone who is currently doubting their faith right now. Currently doubting. It's genuine doubt. They're not being obstinate. They're just generally, I hear this and I hear that and I really don't know what to do. And in talking to this person, I don't need to slam this person. Just say, well, you just need to believe. You're in total error, you know. (laughs) There needs to be some compassion. Well, let me help you. Let me walk you through this. Let's talk about this. Let's be gentle. You help them, but you don't rebuke them sharply because they're just genuinely not sure. They need your help. They need our help. That's the first group. Have mercy or compassion on those who are hesitating in their mind or doubt, genuinely doubting. The second group, however, is rougher. Save others, snatching them from the fire. This is sharper. Because the group here that's in view, these guys are making up their mind. They're showing that they're really not Christians. They're showing that they really don't have the Spirit. They maybe for a time believed, or maybe they were for a time interested. They haven't fully embraced the other view, but they're making up their mind. They're going in that direction. They're making up their mind. And so they need to be snatched from the fire. And it's probable that these people still have some respect for Christians and Christian teaching and Christian leadership so that even though they're making up their mind on the side of the false teachers, if a Christian brother or a Christian leader were to come and say, you're going down the wrong path, they would probably be affected by that. One translation says, save those who are singed by the flames of God's wrath. Snatch them from the fire. They're not quite burning yet, but the flame is singeing their 
skin. And you need to get them out of there before it consumes them. They're almost in. The reformer John Calvin wrote this about this verse. When there is a danger of fire, we hesitate not to snatch away violently whom we desire to save. For it would not be enough to beckon with the finger or kindly stretch forth the hand. Right? Right, Aaron? Aaron's training to be a firefighter. They don't teach you in school. You just stand outside the house and say, come on, guys. Come on. Let me help you. Just just take that right corridor over there. You know, You run in and you get them. Titus chapter 1, verse 13, Paul tells Titus, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. So obviously they still have some respect for Christianity and church leaders and Christian brothers, but here is not genuine doubt. They are going down the road of the false teachers and they need someone to come along and say, no, this is wrong. You go down this road, you're in big, you're in big danger. This issue in Jude is extremely dangerous because it's the gospel that's at stake. And if you get the gospel wrong, as we've been saying, you are lost. So this isn't not compassionate to be sharp. This is what is the measures that need to be taken at this point. The third group, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. This is probably the more dif- most difficult of the three to interpret. Have mercy with fear, hating even the garments or the garment polluted by the flesh. And here's my take on this verse. I believe that these are the false teachers themselves. These are not people who are doubting. These are not people who are close to being destroyed because they're moving in the direction of the false teachers. These are those who are portrayed in this text, even though it doesn't use the word, it's implied. They're portrayed as leprous. These are the lepers. They're not contemplating moving to a leper colony. They're not walking toward the leper colony. They are lepers in the leper colony. They are dead and defiling. They are defiling. As we, earlier in the book of Jude, says, these are those who defile the flesh. And here he's saying, don't hate even the garments that are defiled. These guys are dangerous to the health of the community. The garments polluted by the flesh uh, seems to be an allusion to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. It talks much about garments that are soiled by lepers and that uh, you're to burn those leprous garments if it's, if it's proven that there is leprosy in the garment, you're to burn it. But what he says here is have mercy on them. He doesn't say kill them. He doesn't say exile them. He doesn't say put political pressure on them. But he says, have mercy on them, yet this mercy is qualified or, or it's, it's qualified with fear and hating. Have mercy on them, but, have, but with fear. And here is what I believe the image is. When you help a leper, you help them because of love. Okay? You want to help a leper, you need love to help a leper. And because of love, you go and help them. You go to them, you assist them, you aid them, you clean their wounds, you take care of them. But even though love compels you to go into that colony, even though love compels you to touch that leper and to assist that leper, you're not touching and assisting that leper and helping the leper because you're careless about leprosy, right? 
Now, because of love, you go in boldly. Because of love, you touch boldly. Someone looking at you, though, might think, you don't care about leprosy, you're nuts. And that's not true. What makes you have mercy on these people and what makes you talk to these people and what makes you argue with these people and, and seek these people out to help them is not because you're careless about leprosy. It's not because you think that what they're doing is not a big deal or you think that what they're doing is not really serious and not really grave. In fact, it's because you believe it's grave and because you love them that you're going. So it's not mercy without fear, like, oh, we'll just hang out and I'll talk because you're fine and I'm fine. But it's also not fear without mercy. Oh, you're in a bad situation? I'm just going to rail on you. It is loving and helping these false teachers see the truth, but understanding that their leprosy is leprosy and it's bad. Hating the garments polluted by the flesh would be, I'm helping these people with the full understanding that what they're doing is evil. It doesn't look like I'm treating them like I would if someone was evil, but I am. I'm loving them. I hope that makes sense. So there's these three groups. Have compassion on the doubting. Rebuke sharply those who are close to being burned. And with the lepers, have mercy on them, but don't forget they're lepers. Have mercy with fear. This now brings us to the closing of the epistle. As Jude has just finished his, the imperatives of the letter, stand firm in the faith and reach out and help others. He comes to the closing here, and here we have one of the greatest doxologies in the Bible. Most scholars will point that out. This is one of the most beautiful doxologies in the Bible. A doxology means literally a word of praise. It means a short little hymn of praise to God. And it is always praise to God for something. Never in the Bible do we praise God or thank God in a vacuum. Do we praise God and sing to God and, and give thanks to his name for nothing? It's always because of something that we praise him for. And Jude praises God here for something indeed. And he reminds his readers what God can and will do for them. And this is why he praises God. David H. Wallace writes this, vital to all exhortations to believers. Vital to all exhortations to believers. Should probably say that again because it's really important. Vital to all exhortations to believers. We should remember this when we exhort believers to do things. Is the reminder of the infinite resource of God himself who alone is competent to keep us from falling in this life and to bring us to himself in the last day. When, whenever we exhort one another to do things, we should always remind people of doxology and praise God and thank God for what he is able to do. Amen? Otherwise, when you don't do that, our exhortations be, just become self-focused, right? And human-focused. You better do this, Justin, or else. Don't forget about God, just you. <laughs> now to Justin who is able. But doxology is so important to keep our eyes on the truth that we are not alone and not working alone. And it all doesn't actually fall back simply on us. 
And how much more do we need this assurance in hostile environments? Hostile environments where heretics and heresies abound. We need this assurance so that we can trust wholly on God and rest in His strength and His keeping power, not in us being strong, but in God being strong. It's like what the Bible seems to teach that whenever you think that you're strong, you're going to fall. It's whenever you know your weakness and you say, if I'm going to get through this life, if I'm going to make it to the end with endurance, if I'm going to do any good, it's going to be not because I'm strong, but because of what God is going to do in me and through me and for his name. This is what this doxology is about. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The first thing Jude says that God is able to do. Now, as we go through this, apply it all to yourself, brothers and sisters. If you are a Christian, this is true for you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now some rip this out of context, completely lift it right out of the book of Jude, and they think that stumbling here means sinning in a very general sense. Now to him who is able to keep you from sinning throughout your day, some people actually teach that this verse is proof for the idea that you can live a sinless life if you just simply get up in the morning and name it and claim it. That God, you said you're able to make me not sin today and I'm just going to trust that I'm not going to sin today. They rip it completely out of context. I think stumbling means stumbling into various sins like pride or adultery or lust or whatever. He's able to keep me from stumbling into sin. But that would be to lift this verse right out of context, wouldn't it? Because what is the book of Jude all about? It's about earnestly contending for the faith. It's about standing firm in the faith. In fact, this stumbling in verse 24 is connected with standing. Notice, who is able to keep you from stumbling. The Greek literally means standing firm. He's able to make you stand firm and not stumble. And to present you, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. He's able to keep you from stumbling, which means departing from Christ and departing from the faith. The idea of stumbling is all over the Bible. One example is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, which says that Jesus himself is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they, stumble at the, they that stumble at Christ are they that stumble at the word, those who disbelieve in him. And isn't that what Jude is about? They're stumbling at the truth. They're stumbling at the word. They're stumbling at Christ because they're not believing in him and in the truth. And so what this promise is saying, God is able to keep you, to protect you from stumbling into error, to, from stumbling away from Jesus Christ, from stumbling away from the gospel because he gave you the Spirit He gave you the Spirit which opened your eyes and teaches you all things and therefore He will preserve you in the truth unto the end. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, you know, I write these things because of all these false teachers that are seducing you. However, the anointing that you have received from the Holy One abides in you and you need not anyone to teach you because the anointing and the Spirit that is in you teaches you of all things and it will abide in you, and you will abide in him. So even though John exhorts us, he reminds us, but the Spirit of God in you 
teaches you all things and will keep you, if indeed you are truly born of God. Now, if you're not born of God, it's a matter of time before that manifests and you fall into error. God is able to keep you from stumbling because he gave you the Spirit. This is the problem with the false teachers, is it not? In verse 19, for example, these are those who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. So when you read this, don't be fooled into thinking, God is able to keep me from sinning in a general sense, but it is from stumbling. And this stumbling is connected with the next thing Jude says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and since you are kept from stumbling, he makes you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. He makes you stand blameless. Now, what makes you blameless in the sight of God? Is it not sinning? Is it God, the only way I'm going to stand blameless on judgment day is if you keep me from sinning the rest of my life. So, Lord, you're able to keep me from sinning. Keep me from sinning so that I will stand blameless on the judgment day. Or is it, keep me from departing from Christ. Keep me from believing in error so that I believe in him and thus stand blameless in the presence of his glory. Yes, it is the second one. Only believing in Christ makes you blameless. And where do we stand blameless? Jude tells us, in the presence of God's glory. That literally in the Greek means directly in front of the glory of God. It's a strong word in the Greek. It doesn't just mean before, but directly in front. Like, I'm standing right in front of Jacob and... I'm standing right in front of the glory of God and I am standing there totally without spot. In the, in the light of the glory of God, in his eyes of fire, scrutinizing every nook and cranny and he finds nothing that is to blame. How many of you feel that way about Judgment Day? That, on Judgment Day, how many, how many of you feel like Judgment Day is going to be the day when God with eyes of fire scrutinizes me in a way that I've never been scrutinized in my life and he finds me without blame? Isn't that amazing? Now don't tell me that that depends on your works. Okay. Actually, that would be blasphemous to the extreme. It is the, as we saw before, it is the power of the blood of Christ. It is the power of what he accomplished on the cross. It is the work of his atoning sacrifice and only that which can possibly make you stand blameless before the, in front of the presence of the glory of God. When Christ comes in the glory of his Father with his angels to judge the world, we shall stand. We shall endure that judgment while multitudes are swept away in wrath. We shall stand. That's a sobering and humbling thought, isn't it? Even though we shall stand blameless, multitudes shall not. And what a day that will be when we realize that I am not different than that group at all.
It is not because I'm better than those people. It is not because of anything that I did. It is because of Jesus Christ that I stand. And to him alone be all the glory forever and ever and ever. The power of his blood. The power of his sacrifice. This is why... This is what makes us Christians. This is what we believe as Christians. And if you are not a Christian, this is why you need to become a Christian. This is why you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because there is judgment day that is coming. There is a day when you will stand before the glory of God, the Christ and the glory of his Father and the, of the angels, and you shall be judged. And if you are not blameless on that day, you shall perish forever and ever. Eternally, you'll be lost. Only by putting your faith in Christ can you be saved. And he describes it here, this standing of ours as Christians, in this way. We will stand before his glory with great joy. We will stand before his glory. We shall. This is going to happen if you are a believer in Christ. So this is a fort preview of what's going to happen. So let it sink in. We shall stand before his glory, the presence of his glory. Jude says, with not just joy, but great joy. With great joy. And I'd like to just suggest three causes for great joy on that day. Three causes for great joy. I'm sure there's more, but here's the big three, I think. On that day, when you stand there blameless through Jesus Christ, you will have great joy knowing that you are safe forever and forever, world without end. That's going to cause joy, isn't it? All striving and concern and possibility of falling away is gone. You are safe forever. From great danger you have been saved from and you are now in great security. You ever get that you ever get the get those times where you feel you don't feel secure, you feel kind of in danger? It doesn't feel good, does it? But it feels really good when you finally get into some security, right? Oh, this is good. And you're happy. Imagine that on judgment day multiplied to infinity. (laughs) Seeing the danger that you have avoided through Jesus Christ and standing secure and knowing you are secure forever and that security will never be taken away, you shall have great joy on that day. The book of Isaiah says, you shall delight yourself in the abundance of peace. We sing a song that I'm sure will apply on that day. Not a surge of worry Not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry touches the spirit there. Amazing. So what joy. On that day, you're going to think, oh my, my eternity is one of great safety and peace. Great joy. Secondly, great joy will be had on that day knowing that you are loved. Knowing that you are loved. 
Doesn't it give you joy to be loved? You ever had joy knowing that you're loved by someone? Have you ever had joy knowing that you're loved by God? That brings me joy. Those times when I, it kind of hits me that God loves me. You know, that actually brings me genuine joy. And imagine now on that day, at the, now you've just, all, all the past is finished. You've got eternity before you. It's a completely safe and secure and peaceful eternity. But it's not an eternity where you're going to be alone. It's an eternity where you are loved. Loved exquisitely. And we no longer will sing on that day, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what we sing now, and it's perfectly acceptable now. How many of you know that we know that God loves us based upon faith at this time? Based upon what God has done in history, and we've heard about it, and we read the Bible, and we read the prophecies, and we are convinced, we are persuaded that Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are persuaded of that at this time. But then, it will not be by faith anymore. It's not like, you know, I, I, I don't feel his love, uh, I believe he loves me. At that time, you're standing before the presence of his glory, and you will not believe in his love, but faith will turn into sight, and you will be exquisitely, as you are right now, it's not that he's going to love you at the time, he doesn't love you now, but you will enter into the joy of your Lord because you will enter into that love relationship that the Father and the Son know by experience. And for all eternity, you know that I am going to be loved exquisitely like no one else has ever loved me. There is no greater love. There is no love more real than this and more deep than this that I have to enjoy for all of eternity from God who is here and loving me now, and embracing me now, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Wow! Great joy, brothers and sisters, on that day. Amen? And lastly, although I'd love to hear if you have more, because this is a wonderful topic to meditate on, you will have great joy knowing that you have God to enjoy forever. Now, how many of you know that you get joy at pleasure or at even the anticipation of pleasure? Have you ever experienced that before? I know I have. Um, friends are going to come over and they haven't come over yet, but you're happy that they're coming over. It gives you joy. Or you're going to go see a movie or something and it gives you joy. You're going to eat something really tasty and it gives you joy. The, the object of pleasure uh, gives you joy, knowing oh, I'm going to get to enjoy this. Or when you're actually eating it, you're getting pleasure, you're getting joy out of that object. And you will, on that day, on Judgment Day, have great joy, not only knowing that you are safe and secure forever, not only knowing that you are loved by God exquisitely and deeply forever and ever and ever, but that you yourself get to enjoy God forever and ever and ever. The greatest object of desire and pleasure imaginable. There is nothing more wonderful, more sweet, more beautiful, more pleasing than God himself, and you get to enjoy him forever. Now that's going to be like being excited to eat something times infinity, okay? (laughs) Because it's God that you get. He is your portion just as much as you are his. 
Isn't that going to be awesome? Standing on the threshold, he says, my eternity, man, this is going to be great. Safety and love and God forever. As we sing, Lord, you are more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares to you. Heaven is not going to be great because everything will be gold and diamonds. That'll be cool, but it will be because of God. So, amen, Jude, to him be the glory, to the only God, our Savior, the only God, for there is no other God but him. There is no one like him. There is none other. And he is our Savior, not the Socinian Savior, who comes and just announces what we should do to be saved. But he is our Savior, the crucified Savior, the one who saves us and gives us this joy because he died as a sacrifice for our sins. And he saves us by his true grace, that true grace that these false teachers are perverting, that true grace that God freely and forever saves you not because he doesn't care about justice, but because he cares about you so much that he took care of the justice at the cross of Christ. It is by the power of the blood of Christ that we shall have this joy. This is what it means that he's our Savior. To him be the glory. This is the faith once delivered to the saints that has survived all hostile environments and will will to the end. This is the true grace of God in which we stand. This is our God and our Savior. And so with Jude, we conclude this letter. To him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And if you have a reason to praise him, then with me say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us and for saving us from so great a damnation and for bringing us into so great a life. Lord, we are blown away that you would do this for us, that you would, you would want us to be blameless before your presence when you come with great joy, that you would do that for us, Lord, and at such a cost. It blows our minds, Lord. May we always have doxology in our hearts. Lord, may we always have it on our tongues. May we always remember what you have done for us at what cost and what we have so that we would praise you every day. I pray that we would be a people who praise you, Lord, who praise you because you are worthy of praise for what you've done. We pray this in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, amen.